right, well, last week, anybody remember what we talked about last week? Hermeneutics, good. But we didn't just talk about hermeneutics. What kind of hermeneutics did we talk about last week? Bad hermeneutics. This week I have good news. We're on part two. Some of these are really bad. There are some forms of hermeneutics that we're not going to talk about. There's a woke hermeneutic. There's a feminist hermeneutic is out there. There's a lot of different types of hermeneutics. Some of them we're not going to get to today, but these are the ones that I think are most likely you have either seen, you've heard someone use, or in some cases we have used ourselves. So that's why we're going to go over them. So we're, we're doing part two this morning. We're going to start with one that's pretty popular, the allegorical hermeneutic. The allegorical hermeneutic, the hermeneutic that spiritualizes everything. Let me give you a couple definitions here. Uh, Greg Allison defined it this way. He said, the allegorical hermeneutic is a process of abstraction. The interpreter moves from the concrete realities of the biblical passages to concepts that lie hidden behind these texts. So the goal of the allegorical hermeneutic is not to find out what the text actually says, What does it actually mean? The goal of the text, the goal of interpretation, is to find the meaning that's behind the text. That's not in the text itself, but it's kind of mystically behind it. Bernard Rahm says the allegorical interpretation believes that beneath the letter, or the obvious, is the real meaning of the passage. Can you guys see any problems with this already? What problems do you see with this so far? Right. I can make the text mean anything I want. If the, if the meaning of the text is not in the text itself, I can make it mean whatever I want. Allegorizing reduces the emphasis on words, syntax, grammar, and historical context, and instead focuses on uncovering some deeper spiritual meaning. And this is the exact opposite of the one we looked at last week. We looked at last week, letterism. It's to ignore hyperbole. It's to ignore figures of speech. It's to ignore metaphor and take everything in a very wooden, literalistic fashion. Allegory is the exact opposite. Allegory says everything should be taken as being a metaphor. Everything should be taken as being a spiritual truth rather than what the text actually states. The text has some deeper, more profound meaning than what you can obtain by looking at the words on the page. And by the way, Christians did not come up with this method. This was not something that was started with the apostles. This actually has two sources. It comes from Plato's Greek philosophy and Jewish interpretation. Those are the two sources for this. Plato held that the world that you see is not a real world. What you see isn't reality. It's just a poor copy of reality. And he used an illustration, he used an allegory to teach this. The allegory of a cave. Now, if you look on the the left there, you'll see the cave. Towards the bottom of the cave, you'll see some prisoners. These prisoners are stuck in the cave. And they can only look at the back wall of the cave, the wall to the left side of the picture. They cannot turn around and look behind them. They cannot leave the cave. By the way, in this analogy, you are the prisoners. Behind the prisoners is a fire. That's um, two objects up. There's a fire. And this fire casts light onto that back wall. In between the fire and the prisoners are puppets or other objects that are passed in front of the fire. And as these objects pass in front of the fire, they cast a shadow onto the wall. All the prisoners see of these objects is the shadow. They can't turn around. They can't look back. 
And so someone will take a puppet, let's say, of an elephant and pass it in front of the fire, and they will tell the prisoners, this is an elephant. What do the prisoners see? Only the shadow. Or they will take a book, and they will take the book, and they'll pass the book in front of the fire, and the prisoners see the shadow of a book. But because the prisoners never see the actual book, the word book does not mean this in their minds. The word book means that shadow I saw. And so their language doesn't point to the reality of the book. Their language points to the shadow. And the goal of Greek philosophy is to help them get to the top of the hill there where they can see the reality of what a book is. They can see what the word truly means. So they can stop just believing in the shadows. One writer said, Plato's point, the general terms of our language are not names of the physical objects that we can see. They are actually names of things that we cannot see, things that we can only grasp with the mind. That behind all language is the reality of whatever the language is talking about. But the language itself does not point to that reality. You have to have something else to give you the reality. That's the job of the philosopher, to free the prisoner and show you the reality behind the words that you can't come to on your own. Jews would later pick this up, and they would begin using Platonic thinking to interpret Scripture. One of the most influential was a guy named Philo of Alexandria from around 20 B.C. to 54 A.D. And he took Plato's philosophy, and he used it to find a deeper, more spiritual meaning to the Old Testament. Greg Allison. Philo was a Greek-speaking Jewish scholar who attempted to apply the philosophy of Plato to the interpretation of the Old Testament. Just as Plato had stressed the reality of a spiritual world by lying hidden behind our tangible, visible world, so Philo emphasized the spiritual meaning lying behind the words of Scripture. An allegorical method of interpretation was necessary to discern this deeper meaning. And he said the deeper meaning, the real true meaning of the text of Scripture is not what the Scripture says. It's some spiritual reality that's behind the text that you have to have this special insight to get to. Now, to be fair, Philo in his mind was trying to protect the Jewish faith, and he was trying to protect God. And he thought this was the best way to do it. Because he was having to deal not only part of his life with Christians, saying that the Old Testament was a Christian book, so he had to defend the, Christian, the Jewish faith there, but he also had to defend the Jewish faith and defend God in his mind to keep God as being transcendent because there's all this language in the Bible that talks about God's hands and his feet and his eyes, and it makes God sound like he's human. And Philo thought, well, I really need to protect God from this. Uh, Richard Longnecker gives an explanation. He says there are three reasons Philo started using the allegorical interpretation. First, an endeavor to safeguard the transcendence of God against all anthropathisms, that is, describing God as being human. So we have to make sure God stays transcendent and spiritual, so we're going to use a different language, or we're going to say the text doesn't mean what it says. Two, to vindicate the Hebrew theology before the court of Gresham philosophy. The Greeks were out there saying that there's a deeper, hidden, spiritual meaning, and now he can turn around and say, yes, and our text has a deeper, secret, spiritual meaning as well. And three, to contemporize the sacred accounts so as to make them relevant to current situations and experiences. Philo treated the Old Testament as a corpus of symbols given by God for man's spiritual and moral benefit, which must be understood other than in a literal or historical manner. 
you really want to get to the real spiritual meaning of the text, you cannot take it for what it literally says. So what would this look like? What was Philo's use of allegory? How did it result? Philo did this with the Old Testament, so I want to give you an example. Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 10 through 14. We're just going to read the text first, and then I'm going to let you hear what Philo said about it. Genesis 2, verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Verse 12. Now the gold of that land is good. The bedellium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It's describing geography. The geography is surrounding the Garden of Eden. Why would Moses want to include this in the book of Genesis? So you know where it's at. It's a historical account. This proves the Garden of Eden is actually on the earth. It was a real place with a real location with real rivers flowing through it. It's not how Philo interpreted it. Here's what Philo said. This is a long quote, but I want to give it to you in context. In these words, Moses intends to sketch out the particular virtues. And they also are four in number. Prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. Now the greatest river from which the four branches flow off, is the generic virtue, which we have already called goodness. And the four branches are the same number of virtues. Generic virtue, therefore, derives its beginning from Eden, which is the wisdom of God, which rejoices and exalts and triumphs, being delighted at and honored on account of nothing else except its Father God. And the four particular virtues are branches from the generic virtue, which, like a river, waters all the good actions of each with abundant streams of benefits. You know where he got that from? Now, does that mean that he didn't say anything true in that text? Some of what he said about virtue might be true. It's just, if there's truth in that, it's truth from the wrong text. Even if he gets his theology right, that's not what that text is talking about. Christians would later pick up on this method of interpretation, beginning with a guy named Origen from around 145. And he argued that there is not just one single meaning to every text. And he didn't even argue that there was two meanings to every text. He said every text has three meanings. Every text has a literal meaning. The words mean what they say. But that's not good enough. You need to go further than that. You need a spiritual meaning. So then he said there's a moral meaning, the meaning that teaches ethical and moral living. That's still not good enough. You need the third one. You need the spiritual meaning, the meaning of the text that teaches about the supernatural, God, Christ, salvation, all that good stuff. Every text has three separate meanings. Only one of these deals with the actual text itself. The other two are allegorical, and they are not connected to the actual words on the page. And it was this allegorical meaning that comes from these other two that Origen believed was the greatest and the most important of all the meanings. This was the height of Christianity, is if you can get to this spiritual level, the spiritual meaning. Origen said, if anyone wishes to hear and understand these words, speaking of the Old Testament, literally, he ought to gather with the Jews rather than the Christians. But if he wishes to be a Christian and a disciple of Paul, let him hear Paul saying that the law is spiritual, thereby declaring that these words are allegorical when the law speaks of Abraham and his wife and sons. And so he takes that verse and he applies it and says, all of the Old Testament is spiritual, and we should take a spiritual meaning 
and find a deeper meaning in the text. Origen's idea actually took hold. There was another guy named Augustine. Anybody know how many meanings Augustine found in every passage? Four meanings. There's the literal, which we've talked about. The etiological, which reveals why something was written in Scripture. The analogical, demonstrates a unity between the old and the new. And the allegorical, the figurative understanding of the text. By the way, two, three, and four are all allegorical, even though they're not named that, because none of, none of those three are actually from the text itself. Augustine's fourfold meaning was modified a little bit, but it became the predominant view of how to interpret Scripture for the next 1,100 years until the Reformation. And the remnants of this teaching remain today. Do you know where you can find it? Roman Catholic Church, which still teaches a fourfold meaning to the text. Catholic Catechism. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual. That's the broad categories. The latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and analogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. Why would Rome want four separate meanings to the text? It's the only way she can justify her doctrine. She has to be able to make Scripture fit her conclusions. You can't do that if you take it from a literal view. Terry Milton, speaking of the allegorical hermeneutic, he said, it does not draw out the legitimate meaning of the author's language, but foists onto it whatever the whim or fancy of an interpreter may desire. As a system, therefore, it puts itself beyond all well-defined principles and laws. If I can just take the text and make it mean whatever I want, you have no means to tell me I'm wrong. There's nothing that restrains my interpretation, and there's nothing that can tell me I need to change my interpretation. But if I can make up the interpretation on my own, then I can also deny you the right to interpret it. Because I can turn around and say, no, you don't have the actual meaning. You can't get to it. After explaining the fourfold meaning of Scripture, the Catholic Catechism says this, It is the task of exegetes to work according to these rules, those fourfold senses, toward a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred Scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a firmer judgment. Here it is. For, of course... All that has been said about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the Word of God. There's a fourfold sense, and we are the only ones who are able to tell you what it truly means. And you are not permitted to decide what the text means, because you can't get to this deeper spiritual meaning. Dr. Clausen from TMS, I'm his notes are a big part of my presentation today, said this, ultimately it was de the development of the allegorical method which led to the demise of the doctrine of perspicuity, the rise of creedal interpretation, and consequently the establishment of the magisterium as the only true and capable interpreter of Scripture. This idea that there's a deeper spiritual sense is the catalyst that brought on all of that error. Proof texting. There's two ways you can do this. The first is by using cross-references. And what you do is you find a verse, and it has one word or one little phrase in it that really you want to point out. And so you take that word or phrase, and you go to concordance, and you find where that phrase or word is used somewhere else. And then based on that word alone, 
you make logical connections between the verses. Let me show you how this is done. John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, and he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Matthew 26, verse 26. Jesus at the Last Supper, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, and giving it to the disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body. Both these passages are talking about bread, and in both passages, Jesus is using bread figuratively, right? Catholic Church would tell you that John 6 explains Matthew 26. And Matthew 26 is where they get the idea of the Eucharist, turning the bread turning into the body and blood of Jesus. And they point to John 6 and say, well, John 6 is talking about bread too. And in John 6, he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So therefore, the Last Supper must be talking about John 6. Is that true? John 6, eating and drinking is not, in John 6, is not eating and drinking in a literal sense. John 6 makes it very clear eating and drinking there is believing. And if you follow the argument through John 6, eating and drinking is paramount to faith. And so eating and drinking the bread there is to take Jesus in and to believe in Christ. But when you get to Matthew 26, what's his point there? At the Last Supper. The bread represents his body that will be sacrificed for the elect. Two completely different contexts, two completely different points. And on the basis of the figurative language, they will connect the two and say the two are talking about the same thing. It's another way you can prove text. It's to take one verse and use it as a lens to interpret another verse. And the idea here is you take one verse out of its context, and then you use that to tell you what another verse says. For example, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. The idea here is it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Christ can still save. Christ still saves. You're still in Christ. But the feminist hermeneutic will turn around and say, this verse tells us that 1 Timothy 2.12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 1 Timothy 2.12 is now invalidated. And all positions in the church are open to women. And this command in 1 Timothy 2.12 is now culturally bound, and we can ignore it. And they do it on the basis of Galatians 3. Is Galatians 3 talking about roles in the church? It has nothing to do with roles in the church. And they rip 1 Timothy 2.12 out of its context by saying it's culturally bound, because in 1 Timothy 2.12, he says, the reason I'm giving this command is what? Culture? He points back to creation. This is proof texting using one verse to invalidate another verse. You guys know this one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. What does that mean according to the world today? Don't you dare talk about my sin. Don't judge me. Don't tell me my sin is sinful. You're not allowed to judge. Why is that proof texting? Because the same guy who said that in Matthew 7 verse 1, John 7 verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You're to judge with righteous judgment. In Matthew 7, righteous judgment is not the refusal to judge altogether. It's the refusal to judge hypocritically. 
it's the refusal to be living in sin. If I'm living as a thief, it's the refusal for me to go and lecture and condemn someone else who's stealing. That's a hypocrite. Here's another one. This is a great verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I think guys like Joel Osteen love this verse. All things work together for good. You've lost your job, don't worry. God's bringing you a better job. All things work together for good. Something bad has really happened to you. You've gone bankrupt. It's only because God is preparing you to win the lottery. All things work out for good. And in that sense, they would say this is talking about your temporal good. That any situation you come to in life, that ultimately it'll come out good for you. Is that what this verse is talking about? No, you guys know. Verse 29. Because... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. It's not talking about your temporal good, that everything in this life will work out just the way you want it to. Paul's saying it's all going to work out for your eternal good, that everything you go through in this life is intended to do one thing, to transform you into the image of Christ, to make you more like Jesus Christ. That's the point of all of it not to give you some false hope that because you lost your job, you're going to have a better one tomorrow. I got one more on proof texting. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many of you have heard this is a promise? How many of you heard that? If you just do it right. Parents, if you just... Take your kids to church, get them into Adventure Club, bring them, to, bring them to everything at church, make sure they hang out with the right people, read the Bible enough, make sure they read Pilgrim's Progress at least once before they're 15. You know, follow all these rules. Your kid will come to Christ. They will not depart from it. How many of you realize that causes a whole lot of despair in parents? Because as soon as you tell them, if you do everything right, your kid will come to Christ, well, boy, now you've got a real challenge, don't you? You have to be a perfect parent. Problem. That's not true. This is not a promise. This is a warning. Let me give you a, another translation. This is my translation. Set a child upon the path of his own way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or the LSB. Train up a child according to his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, modern psychology tells you today, don't discipline your children. Let your children just figure it out on their own. Let them decide what they want to do. They'll come to the right decision. That's what it's talking about. Set a child upon the path of his own way. Let him decide, let her decide what's best. Let them choose for themselves what they are going to do and how they're going to live and the path they're going to take in life. Do that. And when they get old, they won't depart from it. They will be just as foolish as they were when they were a child. Proverbs says the heart of a child is filled with foolishness, but the rod of correction will drive it from him. This is not a promise that if you do everything perfectly, you're son or your daughter will turn out to be a Christian. There are parents who do everything perfectly, 
as perfect as a parent can do it. And their child grows up, denies the faith, and runs headlong into sin. This is just saying if you refuse to discipline your child, it's going to have consequences. Okay, any questions on proof texting? Some good examples? There's a lot more, a lot more examples. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. And the other, you know, one side of it is I'm going to blame myself. The other side of it is God made a promise in here and he didn't keep his promise. I did my part and God didn't do his. And now it leads people to question, is the Bible even true? Can I take these promises as they are? We need to understand what the passage is actually talking about. It's a warning. Yeah, God doesn't make mistakes. And regardless of what that child does or does not do, we don't determine when God saves people. He might, he or she might run off into sin for 50 years. And when they're 75, God's like, saved. You look back in history, someone like Augustine, I mentioned him earlier. Augustine was converted and he pointed back to his mom and his mom praying for him constantly as a reason why he was converted. Okay, let's move on to the next one here. Contextualization. This is often used by missionaries who try to make the text relevant to the culture they're going to. Not all missionaries do this, but this is where it's often used. And essentially, this interpretation says that the text, the meaning of the text, is determined by the culture you go to, and you change the text to fit the culture. So basically, the passage doesn't have one single meaning. It has multiple meanings depending on where you're at and who you're talking to. Uh, for example, the lamb, like the Passover lamb, uh, becomes a goat in some cultures. You know why they change it? Because that culture has never seen a sheep before. They don't know anything about sheep. And it has no cultural relevance to them. And so you change it from a lamb to an animal that they know so you can try to connect with your audience. And you can help the audience connect. Well, there's a problem with doing that. It's a major problem with doing that. If you know about sheep, you understand sheep have certain characteristics which make them an apt description for us. Helpless not always very smart or wise, completely dependent. It's a great illustration for us. It's also a great illustration for Christ. Defenseless, doesn't defend himself, goes to the slaughter silently, and dies for someone else. It's a great picture. But if you change the animal, and you change it to a goat, do those animals have the same characteristics? You change the metaphor. You change the picture. And you do that merely so you can try to fit and accommodate the culture that you're going to. Wouldn't it just be easier to explain to them what a sheep is? Because even in our modern American culture, how many of you own lambs? Almost no one. But if your pastor explains what a lamb is and the basic characteristics of sheep, you get it perfectly. There's no reason to change the text. Here's another example of contextualization. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. In Greek, this little phrase, the husband of one wife, is three words. One woman, man. Contextualization will adapt this passage to fit a culture. Now, in the West, we would take one woman, man, and we would look at that and we'd say, okay, that means one man who is faithful to one woman. That if he is in, 
if he is in a relationship with a woman, if he's married, he's faithful to her and to her alone. That's how we would understand that. But in Africa, there are some tribes that don't practice that kind of marriage. They practice polygamy. And so they will focus on the idea of being faithful, being loyal to whoever you're married to. Even if that means you're married to 15 people, just be loyal. You see how we can contextualize the passage and make it mean something to fit the culture we're going to? Next one, integrationism. Integrationism. This has many similarities with what we looked at last week on rationalism. Remember last week we talked about rationalism. Rationalism is saying my reason, my rationing ability supersedes what the text says, and if I can't make the text make sense to my reason, then I have to change what the text means. Rationalism's mantra is reason rules. Everything boils down to my reasoning. Integrationism is very similar in that it says all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. All truth is divine revelation. All truth comes from God, and therefore, all truth is divine revelation. So they would say, like with when we looked at Hugh Ross, they would say that the results of his scientific studies is divine revelation. It is general revelation. Who can tell me what, what is general revelation? Creation, right. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse the work of his hands, right? Romans 1, everyone knows that God exists because of what has been made. And they would say that the results of scientific studies, the results of psychology, is divine revelation. And not only is it divine revelation that comes from God, but it is equal with Scripture in authority. And so we should give the same weight to scientific and psychological conclusions that we give to what Scripture says. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. We're going to look at a couple of them, but first of all, there's a significant difference between general revelation and Scripture. That is to say, there's a significant difference between you interpreting creation and you interpreting the Bible. Scripture is propositional truth. That is, Scripture uses language in clear statements to convey meaning. And by applying the laws of grammar and language, you can come to a definite meaning of what the text says. Can you do that with creation? Creation is non-propositional. That is, it has no words. There's no statements. There's no clear rules for how to interpret it. When you stare at bark at a tree and you try to interpret it as divine revelation, it's like the allegorical hermeneutic. You can come up to any conclusion you want to about what it says. There is nothing to restrain your interpretation, and there's nothing to restrain your biases. We all have biases. But if you're interpreting the text of Scripture, the text restrains your biases because you have to follow the laws of hermeneutics. But what restrains your biases when you look at creation? And you say, well, science restrains it. Does it really, though? Does the scientific method keep an atheist scientist from coming to the conclusion that there is no God? You look at creation, you say, there is a God, there must be a God, look at what he's made. The atheist looks at the same creation and interprets it completely opposite. There's no restraint on your interpretation when you go to creation and use it as a form of revelation. Fundamentally, to say that all truth is God's truth and therefore equal divine revelation flattens out the doctrine of revelation. 
And this is used by people who want to integrate psychology into the church's counseling ministry. Now, if you were in the men's leadership class, you heard some of this. Let me show you the argument that they make. This is from Gary Collins. He's got a book, Christian Counseling, a Comprehensive Guide. Here's what he said. The following chapters assume that all truth comes from God. The following chapters refers to his book. All truth comes from God, including truth about people that he created. All truth comes from God. There is the flattening out of revelation. All truth is divine revelation. His argument is that any truth you learn in the world, about the world or about man, is truth revealed from God. He continues. He has revealed this truth through the Bible, God's written word to human beings. So now he's going to give you the sources of divine revelation. The first source of divine revelation is the Bible. This truth refers to all truth, and this truth comes from the Bible, and the Bible is divine revelation. All truth is divine revelation. But then he says that this divine revelation comes from another source as well. This is just continuing this paragraph. Notice the ellipsis. But he also has permitted us to discover truth through experience, through research investigation, and through the insights that come through reflection, observation, and the words of books and sermons. Notice God's truth, God's revelation is given in the Bible and through research, investigations, insights from reflections, observations, and the words of books and sermons. He's arguing for multiple sources of revelation. God is revealing truth from all of these sources, and the result is that all of these sources are now equal in authority to the Scriptures. And you say, yeah, but, but wait, 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 wait. Scriptures are sufficient. I mean, Gary Collins is a Christian. Doesn't he know that? Gary Collins. But the Bible never claims to be a textbook on counseling. It deals with anxiety, loneliness, discouragement, relationships, marriage problems, grief, anger, fear, parent-child relations, and a host of other situations related to counseling. But it never was meant to be God's sole revelation about people helping. 2 Timothy 3.16, to make the God of man adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work, he says, never intended to be God's sole revelation. Has God said things about helping people in the Bible? Of course he has. But his argument here isn't really about the usefulness of psychology. Because that's where he's going to go. We should use psychology for what the Bible doesn't say. But that's not his argument. His basic argument here is the Bible is not sufficient to help you live a life pleasing to Christ. And what the Bible doesn't say, psychology will provide. And so you need to incorporate psychology to make up for what the Bible doesn't tell you. Scriptures are not sufficient. They need to have psychology. Several problems. First, um, this changes the definition of general revelation. Psychology supposedly studies man to help him live better. But is general revelation revealing something about man? What does general revelation reveal? Reveals God. To say psychology is a form of general revelation is to deny the definition of what it means to be general revelation. General Revelation talks about God. Uh, we don't have time, but if you want, read Psalm 19, 1 through 6. All about God. Second, the argument assumes that psychology is actually science. That is actually engaged in the process of studying creation from a scientific standpoint. And to be sure, I want to say that God is pleased when you study his creation. He's not pleased when you elevate your conclusions to Revelation, but he is pleased when you study his creation as long as it results in worship. 
Take, for instance, medical science. Medical science observes creation. It finds viruses, it performs tests, and it validates all of their conclusions with those tests, with physical evidence. If you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you have cancer, can he prove it? Well, let me ask you this. If he can't prove it, are you willing to take the chemo? If the doctor says you have a broken arm, he can give you an, he can give you an x-ray. If he says you have diabetes, he can do a blood test. If you go to a psychologist and he says you have a mental disorder, can't prove it. There's no proof for it anywhere. Why? Because psychology does not study the physical realm. It studies metaphysical realities. Dr. Perry London, who is actually a psychologist, spoke of psychotherapists this way. He said this, The infections that they, psychotherapists, expose and destroy are not bacterial nor viral. They are not physical. They are ideas and memories, painful emotions and untoward acts that deliberate people and prevent their functioning well and happily. This is the immaterial realm. Emotions, morals, he actually argues in his book that psychotherapists are engaged in moral ethics. And these have historically been reserved for clergy. People went to priests and pastors and members of clergy to deal with these problems. And he recognized that. And in fact, he's heard this argument that psychotherapists are kind of like priests. Here's what he says about that. That the psychotherapist situation differs much from the priest is, I believe, a convenient fiction. There's really no difference between a psychotherapist and a priest. They're engaged in the same work from just two very different perspectives. Psychology is not scientific. It has no physical evidence to support its conclusions and its assertions. Let me just give you some brief evidence for that with a condition you know you've never heard of, I'm sure. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. What physical evidence exists for this condition? Exactly. That is to say, there is no physical evidence for it. The DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is the psychiatric Bible. It's what's used to make these diagnoses. Here's what it says about ADHD. This is a direct quote. No biological marker is diagnostic for ADHD. If you are diagnosed with ADHD and you go to your medical doctor and say, would you please prove to me I have this condition? The doctor will say, sorry, can't do it. There is no test that will prove its existence. Oh, Frank, you're just saying that you don't know the DSM. You're not a psychologist. You haven't been trained. Fine. Dr. Peter Bregan. There is no objective diagnostic criteria for ADHD, no physical symptoms, no neurological signs, and no blood tests. There are no brain scan findings and no biochemical imbalances. No physical tests can be done to verify that a child or an adult has ADHD. No evidence, no proof, just the mere assertion that it exists. How is that scientific? But if it's just an assertion, if they have no evidence, then how have they revealed any truth? What truth have they revealed by making the assertion? Okay, well, it's a condition with no evidence, so how do you make a diagnosis? Diagnostic criterion, these are, this is a lot, but... There's two sides to this. There's the inattentive side, trouble focusing, and there's a hyperactivity side. For those of you who are in men's leadership, I gave you the inattentive side. This is the hyperactive side, okay? This is the evidence, the only evidence for the condition. Often fidgets with or taps hands or feet or squirms in seat. 
often leaves seat in situations when remaining seated is expected, often runs about or climbs in situations where inappropriate, often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly, is often on the go, acting as if driven by a motor, often talks excessively, often blurts out an answer before a question has been completed, often has difficulty waiting his turn, often interrupts or intrudes on others. That's the evidence for a mental disorder. By the way, they diagnose children as young as three based on that and then medicate them. You say, well, okay, the child has to be displaying all of those. No, 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 no. They only need to display six of those. And it could be any combination of this or the other list, which is just as silly as this one. Any combination of six. And you might ask, well, why six? Why not three? Why not the whole list? Why not say all of them? Well, the number is completely arbitrary. There's no scientific or medical reason for choosing six rather than three or 15. It's completely arbitrary. Again, don't take my word for it, Dr. Peter Bregan. Six items from either list qualify a child for the diagnosis. There is no scientific validity or clinical reality to this particular number. Children are routinely diagnosed with ADHD and treated with Ritalin if they display one, two, or three of these characteristics, or even a few behaviors that resemble the traits. By the way, I didn't tell you this, Dr. Peter Bregan is not an advocate for biblical counseling. He is a psychiatrist. This condition is defined by behavior, it is proven by behavior, it is diagnosed by behavior. It is nothing but behavior. Not only does psychology not resemble science, it contradicts scripture. Far from being divine revelation, it contradicts divine revelation. Real quick, let me introduce you to another condition. Oppositional defiant disorder. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Odd. What are some of the symptoms? What's the evidence that you have this odd disorder? Real, real quick. You'll, you'll be amazed. Often loses temper, is often touchy or easily annoyed, is often angry and resentful, often argues with authority figures or for children and adolescents with adults, often actively defies or refuses to comply with requests from authority figures or with rules often deliberately annoys others, often blames others for his or her mistakes or behavior, has been spiteful or vindictive at least twice within the past six months. And once again, that number there at the end, the last six months, is completely arbitrary. There's no scientific or medical reason for saying that these symptoms have to be present for six months rather than two months. It's completely arbitrary. Now, you guys know your Bible. You look at that list. What does the Bible say about those behaviors? Sin. What does psychology say about them? They're symptoms. What does the Bible say is the cure for those behaviors? Christ. Discipline. Ultimately, repentance and faith. What does psychology say is the solution for those behaviors? Drugs and therapy. Psychology is nothing more than man's fruitless attempt to deal with sin without Christ and without God. That's all it is. They want to incorporate this into the church. This is not divine revelation. This contradicts divine revelation. 9.57. I got two and a half minutes. Okay, we're on the last one. The Christocentric hermeneutic. This is actually really popular, and it's really popular because it sounds so good. I mean, on the surface, this sounds like this should be what we should be doing. It says that every passage of Scripture in some way is about Jesus. 
Jesus is described, discussed, or referenced in every passage, even if he's not directly mentioned. And if he's not directly mentioned, he should be read into the text. And they use another bad hermeneutic that we just talked about. They use proof texting to make their argument. Let me show you. John 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness to me. See, the scriptures are all about Jesus. Luke 24, verses 25 and 27, through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they look at these two verses and say, see, every passage of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Problem. Is that what Jesus is talking about in John 5? In John 5, he's dealing with Pharisees and people who think that they can go into the Scriptures and obey really well and get eternal life by doing it. And his point there was, the Old Testament is to prove to you you can't, that you need me. In Luke 24, when he says all the Scriptures, he's not saying in every single passage, he's saying in all parts of the Scriptures. And he actually defines it there in the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. And Jesus, would, when he defended and proved who he was through the scriptures, used all three parts of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And like I said, this hermeneutic usually sounds really good. You, you read someone like Robert Plummer. If we study or teach any part of the Bible without reference to Jesus, the Savior, we are not faithful interpreters. Every passage of scripture must be read as a chapter in a completed book. As we know how the story wraps up in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we must also be asking how prior chapters lead to that culmination. So he would say that when you sit down and you read in the book of Genesis about Noah and the flood, that you should in some way make Noah and the flood about Jesus. Was Moses intending to talk about Jesus when he wrote about the flood? Was that his point? It has nothing to do with Jesus, other than if you want to say the second person of the Trinity was involved in the judgment. Or another one, Peter Kroll. Here's the key point. We must first understand the main point of the Old Testament passage before we can connect it to Jesus. We shouldn't look for Jesus in every detail. Jesus isn't necessarily in every detail, but his message is there. The message of the whole Bible is a unified message that boils down to those four points from Luke 24, 46 through 47. Every passage should be made about the message of Jesus. And we should read him into every passage. Sounds good but it forces you to force meaning into the text that is not in the text. I'll come back and I'll finish this next week because I have eight reasons why you should not accept this. But I don't have time to get through eight reasons unless, well, I'm already over time. So let's stop here and we'll finish this up next week. If you have any questions, feel free to come and see me afterwards. Let me pray real quick and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, Christ and the gift of salvation through Christ. And uh, we do ask that you would be with us this morning as we come and we worship, that uh, our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to you, that Christ would be exalted, that the name of Jesus would be uh, praised, and that you would be pleased. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.